Hello, everyone. I am super excited for today's episode. I have an amazing guest, Dr. Chris Parsons from the Speak Up for Blue Network. And today we have a really far-ranging conversation. He is traditionally a marine scientist, but as you'll learn from the first question that I asked them, he asked him, he has worked a lot in the conservation realm and what it means to work in the conservation realm as well. And now he's doing a lot of science communication. Today, we are going to have a discussion on conservation research in academia. So we are talking about professors that work at universities and how their research done on conservation is viewed by the universities and other things that are just as important or can even be more important than the research itself. And we are also going to talk about scientists and conservation research in academia. And some scientists actually do not consider themselves advocates. They want to steer clear away from that. So we talk about one of his new papers on advocacy and activism and how they're not dirty words and why it's important for scientists to become advocates at the very least. It's based on one of his new papers that's out. So here you'll find an amazing conversation where we talk about lots of things involving conservation research, mostly in an academic setting, but you're going to learn a lot from him. He's worked in a lot of different places. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump into the conversation. Let's go. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice, all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. Welcome to the Fancy Scientist podcast. I'm so happy to have you on. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. It's great to be on the show. Okay, I just wanted to start off before we get into our main topic of conversation. If you could just give us a brief introduction of yourself and tell us how you got into this crazy field. (laughs) Well, at the moment, I am doing basically professional science podcasting. So that's the main part of my life with a bit of science consulting on the side for a variety of NGOs. So I spend most of my days editing podcasts and uh, also writing reports. So it's a little unusual to be this side of the microphone instead of your (laughs) side of the microphone. But uh, that's what I'm doing at the moment. But before that, let me see, going right back to the very beginning, I suppose, I started doing whale and dolphin research back in the early 90s, studying humpback whales. And then I went and did a PhD on dolphins in Hong Kong, which at the time, no one really knew that there were any dolphins there. Uh, yet in this really, really busy industrial area, sure enough, there are these, in fact, they're bright pink dolphins swimming around in this horribly degraded environment. So I went over there expecting to do kind of rather idealistically, I was going to just do research. I was going to look at their behavior and so on. 
but I very soon got dragged into the whole sort of politics of the environment and giving advice to the government. And my project went from being behavioral studies, sitting on a clifftop watching dolphins swim past, to doing strandings, looking at contaminants, getting engaged with various different stakeholders to try and get these dolphins conserved, even doing things like designing pictures of dolphins. So we went from a situation where the dolphins were hardly known by anyone to at the end of the project, the dolphins were actually the mascot of the Hong Kong handover. And so there were big neon pink dolphins on the sides of skyscrapers and there were stuffed toys and there were t-shirts. And I sort of helped design the cartoon (laughs) that they used in this. And um, we're in the newspapers all the time. And I really sort of understood the importance of science communication in terms of getting conservation done. Then I went to the UK where there are very, very few jobs for marine mammal scientists. And I happened to stumble, luckily, into a small NGO that had just got a small grant to take on a part-time person. And I started working there on the science and education projects there and within about six months managed to find enough money to make it a full-time position and also get some other staff positions and then about a year later managed to get a nearly a million dollar grant to purchase a boat and do a whole bunch of environmental projects monitoring projects doing education projects. We went between the different islands on the west coast of Scotland, doing a sort of show and tell about the whales and dolphins of the local area and working very, very closely with the local community to try and explain what was going on in the government in terms of upcoming conservation and sort of acting as a a go-between between the NGOs and the government and the local community because we were very much embedded in the local community. And uh, Conversely, passing concerns from the community back to the government. And in that area, it was very much a location where tourism was the number one industry by far. So we did a lot of work looking at the socioeconomics of tourism and pointing out how important well and dolphin watching was for the local economy. And uh, that was probably one of the most gratifying parts of the project there. We went from a situation where if you went to Scotland, all you saw were like pictures of Braveheart and people talking about golf and whiskey. And by the time we finished, if you went to a tourist information center, it was all about seagulls and whales and dolphins and otters. So we use our social and natural science research basically to show how important the marine wildlife was to the local economy, how important it was to draw people into the area. It was creating jobs and therefore it became very important in terms of local politics. And one of the last things we did before we left was did a study looking at people's attitudes to the marine environment and found that Most people were really concerned about the marine environment. They're concerned about whales and dolphins. They wanted to know more. Uh, They were very, they wanted to have behaviors and activities that protected them. And especially, they said that protecting the marine environment was a very important thing for them when it came to voting. And all the polls 
that the politicians have produced barely mentioned the environment until then. So when we had this data showing quite a huge impact that having a pro-conservation stance would have on this electorate on the west coast of Scotland, we went from a situation where no one talked about marine conservation at all in, in politics, really, to going to the very next election where every single party had a couple of page spread at least in their party political pamphlets about what they were going to do for the marine environment and what they were going to do to protect whales and dolphins and marine tourism and so on. So it really illustrated to me how, although natural science can help conserve a species, getting into the social science really provided you a huge amount of ammunition which you could then take to policymakers to convince them to make pro-conservation decisions. And uh, yeah, it was really, really quite striking what a difference that made. Just Because politicians understand polls, and if you give them percentages, they, they get it. Whereas if you give them a t-test, mm, not so much. If you show them a spatial model, they're not really going to get the implication. But if you tell them that 50% of their electorate is more likely going to vote for them, if they have a pro well and dolphin and marine conservation stance, that really resonates. And suddenly, boom, all this funding and all this interest suddenly opened up. So I went from there, moved to the US, became a professor for 14 years, um, working in an environmental science and policy department right on the edge of Washington, D.C. So most of my students, either when they graduated, they went to work for NGOs or the government, or they were actually in the government or NGOs and came to me to do their graduate studies and to do their graduate research. So very, very much involved in what was going on in Washington, D.C. We literally had things that came across people's desks hot priority issues like the Deepwater Horizon spill and all sorts of issues like that. And we could discuss them in class. And some of the things we came up with in class actually ended up getting put into rules and regulations. So that was very, very cool. But then my relationship with academia somewhat soured when they had a big changeover of administration in the university where it became all about money, money, money. How much money can you bring in? And uh, all the sort of community and service that the previous administration had had kind of just went out the window. And so then I left that and went into science communication and have been doing professional podcasting, as I said, and uh, writing reports, consulting for environmental groups and so on uh, and t- since then. Wow, that is really impressive. I, I mean, I knew you did that type of work, but I didn't realize you, your work had that amount of reach and integration with the community. And you are so right. I think so many people go into this field for your research or for uh, marine biology. They probably want to be on boats watching dolphins and watching whales. But really, so much of the conservation work is working with fishers and boats and the people who are um, in these commercial fishing operations because those types of rules and regulations are really what affect the marine mammals and their conservation. 
Side note, I don't know why I said fisher here. A fisher is an animal. I guess I don't say fisherman that much, so it didn't come naturally to me. And I actually did do a briefly um, a little bit of fisher work. And fisherman is also sexist as well. So we could say fisherman or fisherwoman. So maybe that's why fisher sounds better. Absolutely. A lot of marine conservation is sitting in a pub over a couple of beers, <laughs> talking talking to some local stakeholders, trying to explain what's happening to them, listening to them, seeing what their concerns are, and trying to reduce conflicts before they escalate. We had several situations where we had, for example, put a lot of footwork into explaining something that's coming down the line from the government to the local community. And then we had a government scientist come in, immediately alienate the crowd by either being too scientific or patronizing or treating them as if they were stupid. And then we'd have to come in and try and sort of fix those fences and so on. So removing conflict, identifying conflict, reducing barriers, trying to get stakeholders to see scientists as people and vice versa. That has been a lot of marine conservation for me. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked all over the place doing this. Uh, I've done a lot of work in Latin America. I've done stuff in Asia, Central Asia, as well as Southeast Asia. Um, even done a little bit of work in Antarctica. So a lot of these methods and techniques are very, very transferable wherever you go. But unfortunately, it's not the sort of thing that they often teach to students who are studying conservation. It still tends to be really quite scientific and the social science and the communication and the conflict resolution side of things, the community, understanding the community, working with the community, tends not to get taught at universities. Yeah, you are so right about that. I, when I first started, I mean, I always go to the Society for Conservation Biology meetings. They're my favorite meeting. I love them. And my first one was in 2006. And over the years, I heard other scientists comment as they realized, like us, that conservation a lot of the times the solutions are in the community, in politics and economics. So they started bringing in more speakers on those topics and the social science. And one of the professors made a comment like, there's really no more science in this anymore. And it's like, no, this is totally <laughs> science. It's just a different, it's just a different area. And this is the part that really makes a different in, difference in conservation. Uh, absolutely. And that, that sort of comment is something I used to hear <laughs> a lot. Oh, yeah. Social science is just hand wave science or, you know, it's, it's just one step removed from basket weaving. But someone told me, but you know, this social science studies that we're doing exactly the same. You have a hypothesis, you test that hypothesis, you're doing statistical analysis. It's just your data is coming from questionnaires. And there's a lot of, there's a lot behind it as well. You, there's a lot, real skill in terms of writing a questionnaire so that there's no bias. Yes. Uh, it's very, very hard to do. Yeah. I mean, just look at some of the political in air quotes, questionnaires which are coming out from uh, certain political parties about how amazing is the president doing at the moment? Is he doing really amazing or super <laughs> duper amazing? Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's, and that's I actually, scientific. <laughs> yeah, and social science, I dabbled in social science. I have at least one paper and a couple of more coming out. I did questionnaires as well. For those of you who don't know, social science is um, studying people's attitudes and usually survey them. But because you're studying human beings, you have to um, have your research approved and it has to go through a board. And to protect people's rights, and rightfully so, you have to be really, they're really strict about the things that you can tell them or expose to them. You can't control it as easily as you could animals in a lab, obviously. So it, it's really hard to interpret the results. It's, it's sometimes really hard to get at the questions that you, you really want to know about. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you find that if you're doing studies, for example, very often in Latin America, just sort of culturally, there are all these issues that come into play when you're doing questionnaires and surveys. For example, if you go to a household, you'll sometimes find the the women of the household say, oh, no, you have to ask my husband. No, actually, we want to know what you think yeah and uh, how this impacts your family and the tendency for people to try and say what they think you want to hear as well and you find that in a lot of culture including the british who wants to be generally want to be polite so (laughs) they try to be as sort of ingratiating as possible so you don't necessarily get their true uh, true feelings about a, a particular subject, or you know, they might not want to reveal what they really think about things. So there's a technique, various techniques to try and get what people really feel. Because uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show House, but he says that people lie all the time, and it's true. <laughs> Even in social surveys, people will lie to you because they want to give you an answer that kind of makes yeah. them look good in your eyes. Yeah, or they think they think you want to hear. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and in, in cases with, we'll switch topics after this, but in cases with an endangered species or poaching, they could even be lying to protect themselves because they might be a poacher or they might know people who are poachers. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And very often we're trying to find out the level of illegal activity that goes on. And yeah, of course, it's a, if it's illegal, no one's going to tell you because they're incriminating themselves. Right. <laughs> okay. But so you mentioned that this type of work, this type of conservation work is not really favored in universities anymore and that we're not really training students or giving them the right skills that they need for these types of jobs in government, nonprofits, policy, et cetera. And you have a new paper out about, it's called, Is the Academic Conservation Scientist Becoming an Endangered Species? Can you um, talk more about that and what motivated you to write this paper? Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is very much motivated by the experience of myself, my students, uh, my colleagues, many, many beers in pubs at conferences like the... I thought you said years at first, but I realized... Very, many beers, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, many years and many beers. (laughs) Conferences at the likes of Society of Conservation Biology, where people are basically saying the same thing, but no one's sort of wanting to point out the emperor's got no clothes for fear of repercussions and now i'm in a situation on hey i don't have to you know the dean's done the worst they could possibly do to me so there's no repercussions if i tell people how, how it is so what i'd like to point out the the paper i'm talking about is more for people who have graduated because i am seeing increasingly especially at the undergraduate level There is more attention in a lot of programs to be interdisciplinary, 
to highlight the importance of science communication. And there's some fantastic undergraduate programs, which are sort of cutting edge, practical conservation that bring in leadership, that bring in role-playing sessions to do stakeholder conflict resolution and so on. But you're not really seeing this translated into academia. People, the students are coming out with this great training in some of these programs, which equip them to work for NGOs and so on, but are not equipping them for carrying on in academia. Because in academia, you are evaluated on several things. Typically, you're evaluated on your publications, your research, your teaching, and your so-called service. But increasingly, it's more about whether or not your papers are in high-impact factor journals. And quite frankly, for conservation, the highest impact factor, I mean, the something like science or nature is an impact factor of about 30 for um, people who are not in academia. I'm just going to take a moment and talk about impact factor for a second and what this is. Scientists write publications for peer-reviewed journals. And in episode 16, I talk more deeply about that process, about how science works. And how our publications are evaluated by some people like universities, not that universities are people, but the people within the universities is by the impact factor. So this essentially has to do with how frequently your article is cited. And in some disciplines, it's just going to be a much lower number. Lower is um, not as good. You want higher numbers, but it it's based on the number of citations, which actually has to do with how fast your field works. So in general, ecology, conservation biology, they're going to be much slower than lab work where you can do experiments in weeks or months. Our experiments usually take years. So just the rate of citation for us is naturally slower. And to get in these higher impact journals, your research has to be novel, cutting edge, new, and it also has to appeal to a broad audience, to all sorts of scientists out there. So if you're really working on nitty gritty conservation problems that are maybe really specific to a certain area, that doesn't mean the research is not important, but it's not gonna get into a high impact journal. The average grade, I suppose, of a conservation journal is about uh, one and a half, and the top ones are about three or four. So if you go to something like a biomedical journal, because they're very specialized, their impact factors are more like 25 to 30. And an impact factor basically measures how frequently papers are cited in a particular journal. So if you have a really, really specific journal that's very narrow, then it's going to be citing papers from that particular journal again and again and again and again, because that's all there is. But in conservation, especially we found, especially with marine conservation, people are taking stuff from multiple different disciplines. They're taking things from psychology, 
and politics and social studies and they're taking things from fisheries and they're taking things from, from marine mammal journals and coral journals so the impact factors tend to be really really low they're not all coming from one place as opposed to the journal of genomics for example or cancer cell biology or something like that which is very very specific and narrow so it means that the journals are great because they're multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary, finding information from everywhere. But the way that journals are measured, it doesn't give them the great impact factor. So you're being a great interdisciplinary scientist, but in terms of academia, they just look at your best paper and go, hmm, 3.5 impact factor journal. That's That hardly even registers in, compared to medical journals, but that's like the top journal in the field. Also, there's very little funding for conservation. I mean, most of my big grant, a big grant for conservation for me would maybe be $20,000. I mean, that would be huge. Whereas universities have an expectation of, in fact, I was told you have to bring in at least a million dollars in three years. We'll just get tenure. And also a big chunk of that has to go to the university as overheads. So funding, publications, and um, then just the value of conservation isn't appreciated either. You could do something that leads to the establishment of a protected area. You do something that saves a species from going extinct, but that's not going to count towards promotion. There's no metric that you can measure. There's nothing that you can put down your on your tenure in your tenure folder. So changing the attitudes of a community to become pro-conservation, getting a piece of legislation put in place, as I said, establishing a protected area, doing something that leads to a population of species recovering. That's hugely important in terms of real-world impact but it means nothing in terms of academia. And you couldn't put something like that under service? No. Oh, wow. <laughs> no. I, thought, I thought you were going to say like, yeah, you can put it, but you know, they don't really think it's that big of a deal, but okay, you can't even put no, it. No. And for those of you who are not in this field, doing things like establishing a protected area, it's, it's not easy to do by any means, even if it's your full-time job. So if you're a professor and you're able to get something like that accomplished, it's definitely going to take up a lot of your time and it has a really important outcome. But again, you said you're, there's, there's no acknowledgement of that. And then talking to other people about it, a number of people who are going through exactly the same situations, that their science wasn't being understood. And very often people who do conservation are nested within a department of biology. Yeah. So very often they're being compared to medical researchers where very much the sort of standard of you've made an achievement is getting one of these R1 research medical grants, which are really hard to get in the first place. But if you as a conservation scientist, yeah, I got my $20,000 compared to someone who's bringing in one and a half million dollars, that, that becomes a, a problem. You know, someone who's publishing in journals where the lowest impact 
factor is twice the impact factor of your highest journal. So conservation scientists are often in a situation where they're nested in somewhere like biology or they're nested in an interdisciplinary department where they don't really understand your field and they're constantly comparing them to the, the older traditional fields like geology or biology. And even though there's lip service to interdisciplinarity, it very rarely happens. And I'm involved with the Association for Environmental Studies and Sciences. And that's, a, again, very interdisciplinary environmental field where we have people from the humanities, we have people from social science and natural science, from geology, all coming together who are trying to do interdisciplinary work. And they're all saying the same sort of things. But people say, yes, yes, we have to be interdisciplinary. But when it comes down to it, they really don't understand what that means. <laughs> yeah. And as a result of university is not favoring this conservation work, essentially we're, we're losing more conservation research over time and it affects the field in general. The oh. other thing, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's very, very few conservation academic jobs, which leads to lots of competition. And that in turn leads to a lot of toxicity as well. When there are very few positions that are well-paid People are fighting against each other. It gets very nasty competing for these positions and very competitive. And it just leads to a sort of toxic environment. And I see that quite a lot in a variety of conservation or marine biology related fields where competition just leads to toxicity. Yeah. The, the other thing that I noticed when I was in graduate school is... Some professors would call themselves conservationist, or they would say, I was in genetics, so I interacted with a lot of geneticists. They would say, like, I'm in conservation genetics. But if they're not working with government agencies or people on the ground, which, which I frequently saw, they would do a study investigating a genetic question within a species, maybe even an endangered species, and they would publish the paper in an academic journal. But the results themselves, they don't do anything. You have to get them to reach the, the policymakers for it to really have an effect. Oh, yes. This is, this is another thing. Yeah, this is another thing. We, we actually did some research on this. I said we, Jennifer Thornhill, uh, who's one of my students, did this fantastic project looking at wolves in, in particular and what wolf-related science actually ended up getting used in terms of policymaking. And she found that the stuff that got used was from the scientists who, first of all, went to the managers and then asked them, well, what do you need to know? You know, how do you want this science presented? What sort of facts and figures do you need in order to progress conservation? And hardly anyone actually does that. They don't go to communities. They don't go to the uh, managers, the, the regulators, and ask them what they need to know. They just go, well, I think that this is going to be important for conservation, so I'm going to do my study on this. And even if the managers see that publication, which quite frankly, they probably won't. This was another aspect of the research that unless it went into three or four journals, which 
that um, government agency happened to subscribe to, they weren't even going to see those publications. They had no access to them. So, you know, you might as well have not bothered doing it. So unless uh, you actually went to the the regulators, that work, all very nice, but it's not going to help us at all. So a lot of so-called, this is going to be useful for conservation research really isn't. Yeah, that's like a last line in so many papers. <laughs> this is going <laughs> yes. to be used for conservation and management, something along those lines. Oh my goodness. And uh, let's face it, the, the average scientific paper gets read by two people. One of which is one of which is probably your spouse who's read it. For <laughs> mine hasn't read mine. <laughs> so, I talk yeah. about it too much. Here, he knows what's in it. <laughs> the average readership of a scientific paper after it's been published is only two people. So, if you think that your research is going to make any difference in the world, then then you're really, really naive. So, you have to get that research into a format that the appropriate audience is going to see, is going to understand. And this is one of the key things. This is uh, what I sometimes refer to as advocacy in, its, in one of its forms, getting the right information in the right format to the right person at the right time. So this might be going to Capitol Hill and talking to people. This might be putting stuff out on social media. This might be having a meeting with an NGO, telling them what you did so that they can then take it up and use it in their discussions and their reviews of policy documents and so on. But if you think that just because you publish it in a peer-reviewed journal that it's going to have any impact at all, then you're sadly mistaken. So there usually has to be some sort of outreach with your paper, some sort of engagement with NGOs, with the community, with policymakers, in order for it to have any impact at all. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the word advocacy. I know you have another paper out that's called Advocacy and Activism Are Not Dirty Words, How Activists Can Better Help Conservation Scientists. And when I was in graduate school, I, I had that discussion where I don't even know if I were use the word advocate, but just even, I guess I did, I probably did, like advocating for conservation issues. And one scientist was like, oh, we can't do that because it potentially biases the results or other people might think you're biased towards results. Can you talk about that stigma and, and, and what we can do to, to remove that? That stigma actually was, a lot of it was generated by certain industries, primarily the um, cigarette industry, when they were trying to stop medical researchers looking into cancer and cigarettes. But it also expanded into a whole bunch of other industries, including environmental chemicals and the toxic effects on people, climate change, a whole bunch of issues. Uh, there's a lot of stuff related to the oil and gas industry as well. And um, this was something that was actually done as a specific strategy to try and stop scientists getting engaged and bringing facts to policymakers, basically. There's some really great books by the likes of Naomi, oh my goodness, uh, she wrote the book uh, Merchants of Doubt, 
so there's there's a whole bunch of researchers who've looked at this going back from climate change, whether that's the cigarettes and and uh, toxic chemicals, uh, DDT and so on, right back to Carol uh, Rachel Carson's um, book Silent Spring. It was a PR campaign and unfortunately a lot of scientists are sort of bought into this that they must stay in the ivory tower and they must not engage and somehow advocacy is is dirty and sullies them and stops them from being pure and so they really have sort of drunk the kool-aid from the the bad guys for want of a better word now what advocacy really is is just arguing on behalf of your cause. So if you're a lawyer, a lawyer advocate, you are arguing on behalf of your client. And as a scientist, you may be arguing on behalf of your science, the implications of your science to conservation. If you have a study showing that a population of animals is heading towards extinction, arguing that something needs to be done is advocacy. And it you should do it because otherwise you're just going to watch that species disappear. And as I said, if you publish your paper in a scientific journal, probably no one's going to see it. So it's just really taking your information. And a lot of people try to self-market themselves in order to promote their, promote their careers. They're advocating on behalf of their careers. So you see that all the time and no one has any issues with that. So why can't you do that on behalf of your species or your ecosystem that you're trying to protect? So as I said, uh, one of my deficient definitions of advocacy or effective advocacy is getting your science in a format that is transferable, is understandable, taking it to the right person, you know, spreading your study out on Twitter is all great, but if it really needs to be seen by regulators, it's probably better going to have a meeting with the regulator and giving them a one-pager and to give them a quick elevator pitch about why your science is important rather than spreading it out on Twitter. Um, and at the right time, if there's a... Sometimes things open called policy windows. For example, with Cecil the Lion, suddenly everyone was interested in lion conservation and the canny NGOs exploited that so-called policy window when everyone is interested. When people are talking about black people being murdered, it's really hard to then try to talk to policymakers about getting your environment protected. So you have to realize when a good time is to progress your agenda right uh, like with covid going on right now it's i find it difficult to talk about the plastics problem absolutely absolutely there are so many so many different issues going on at the moment it's really hard to go to a policymaker and go but the environment is important too <laughs> or yeah yeah save save this rare species of frog when you know a thousand people are dying every day in the u.s alone so, yes, you have to realize when your window has opened and to be ready and to, and to progress that argument. I actually had someone comment on my Twitter or on my YouTube channel. I had a post about palm oil and the link between it and orangutans. And 
it's really about palm oil affecting the forest, but we talk about orangutans because people tend to like them. They're charismatic species. And somebody commented, am I really supposed to care about this stupid, ugly animal? So I'm still thinking of a response, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to respond to it. But <laughs> yeah. You, so, and- you, you, yeah, you do get that all the time. If you talk about any issue, then people go, oh, what about homeless people? Right. Or what about veterans? Or what about this? And this sort of whataboutism, quite frankly, yeah, there's no point even engaging that person because they're just trying what they're just trying to form an argument. They're trying. It's a type of trolling, right? Basically. But so it's true, not- though. How do you make somebody like a like a politician be like these orangutans are going extinct? They're halfway across the world, and they need to worry about COVID happening here and unemployment. And you're right, timing is important, and and you and we do have to explain things in a way that's relevant to to people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're talking to a policymaker, if you're talking to a fisherman, uh, you're talking to you're talking to a rancher you have to put it in terms where it makes sense to them. So, for example, we were talking about marine tourism at the beginning. That has an impact on people's lives because it creates jobs. So by saving the whales and dolphins, you save all these different jobs. But also by saving whales and dolphins, you make people look at you favorably and that gets you more votes, which is something that politicians care about. So you, you have to put it in terms that your audience can relate to and can understand, even if it's something like, well, it might not be important to you, but I bet your kids love whales and dolphins. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up the example of polling and how politicians care about polling because um, I just recorded this morning, but um, when this episode goes out, it will have been last week's episode. And that's all about the importance of voting. And really that's the most important thing you can do for conservation. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you can make, if you can make your conservation issue an election issue, then you basically bring in the politicians working on your side. <laughs> yes, absolutely. they're going to push that, and they're going to—they're uh, going to do everything they can to help out. So yes, it's framing. Framing is so much of conservation. You frame the issue depending on your particular type of audience. Some people might just go, "Oh, these animals are so cool and fascinating," which is what a lot of people do with the charismatic megafauna like the orangutan. That's a way of getting your audience to care. But for some people, you might have to use an economic argument or, you know, the argument that by cutting down the rainforest to make plantations, you're getting rid of you're getting rid of plants that might be economically important because of drugs and so on. You're leading to an environment where there may be landslides and reduced fertility and it's not sustainable long-term, which leads to job. So yeah, different audiences, you have different ways of framing your argument, but you have to find out what they care about first, which again is where social science comes in. Well, we are running out of time. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? Well, we talked about advocacy and one thing that people very often get mistaken is the difference between advocacy and activism. And again, very often activism is used as a dirty word. But if it wasn't for activism, 
hardly anything would ever happen. Right. Activism, you know, the US wouldn't exist if it wasn't for a bunch of scholarly activists way back when in the 1700s. We wouldn't have civil rights if it wasn't for activists. We wouldn't have uh, a whole bunch of different types of healthcare if it wasn't for activists. There's a lot of things we wouldn't have if it wasn't for activists. And activism is just bringing public attention to your particular issue. It's publicizing an issue, and that's what it is. And again, very often people use activism incorrectly. They use it in place of advocacy, which, as I said, it's arguing on behalf of something, whereas activism is drawing attention to. So um, you could be having pictures of cute animals and say, look, save this cute animal. And that's, that's more activism rather than advocacy. You are drawing attention to an issue, but you're not necessarily arguing for it. So people very often use that incorrectly and treat it as it's an inappropriate thing. But we wouldn't have anything nice if it wasn't for activism. Where we have the problem is when people are activists and they use incorrect science or poor right. arguments or, or so forth. So, in fact, a lot of scientists, I would say, you're probably being activists all the time because you're highlighting your research. If you put your study out on Twitter, you, in a way you're being an activist for your work. But where we have the problem is when people are activists and they're using incorrect information or they're threatening people or arguing badly with people. Or we see this a lot of times with whales and dolphins where they're way of dealing with whaling is to call people murderers and to threaten them. And no one's ever been convinced by having their kids threatened or being told that they're awful people. That's just, well, apart from anything else, it's ineffective. It's just going to get people more entrenched. And that's what gives activism a bad rap, really. Yeah. And I personally think that if you say you're a conservation scientist, I, I feel the word conservation in itself is an advocacy word because you're, you're advocating for the, the preservation of, of nature. You're not going to be for, for development that harms nature for the extinction of species. You're, you're innately going to want the decision that's best for conservation. Absolutely. And if you look at some of the definitions of conservation science, if you look at the, the goals of the Society of Conservation Biology, there is language in there which basically says we are advocating on behalf of biodiversity. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you are, belong to Society for Conservation Biology, by default, you agree with advocacy and you agree with activism because you're trying to raise awareness of conservation issues. I think that's also in the, the terms of references for the Society for Conservation Biology too. By default, you're engaging in those. It's just that certain branches of particularly activism get a bad rap because of bad players. But we have yeah. that in everything, you know, in, so yeah. in, uh, you know, in soccer, you know, some soccer players keep fouling people. <laughs> that doesn't mean that all soccer players are bad. Right. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much for this discussion. It was really interesting. And I just learned so much from you. And you've done so many cool things to be proud of that have had a real impact on this world. <laughs> it's so I, true. I mean it genuinely. Oh, thanks, <laughs> Don't very laugh. thanks very much. I don't know. I guess my career has always been a case of I've seen something where I've seen there's been a problem and I've wanted to try and deal with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> fortunately, um, in some of the institutions I've worked in, they haven't really appreciated that. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Once again, thank you so much, Chris, for being on the show. I had such a great time talking to you. You can find more of Dr. Chris Parsons on Twitter. You can connect with him there. His handle is at Kraken McCrake. I believe that's how you pronounce it. It's the first time I've said it out loud. It is at C-R-A-K-E-N underscore M-A-C-C-R-A-I-C. He's one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. You can also find him on several podcasts. One of them is the Marine Conservation Happy Hour. I was on that one. It was super fun to talk to him and Scarlet Smash, aka Ashley Scarlet. And it's a really great marine science podcast that talks a lot about not only marine science issues, but also some of the more academic issues that we talked about today. So thank you guys once again for listening and I hope you have an amazing day. Thanks so much. Bye. Don't forget, you can also pre-order my book, Getting a Job in Wildlife Biology, What It's Like and What You Really Need to Know. You can pre-order the Kindle version. And when you do so, save a copy of your order number because you can go to my website, fancyscientist.com and go under the career advice section and you'll see a post about a bonus masterclass. I am offering... This 90-minute, at least 90-minute masterclass on CVs, resumes, and cover letters for wildlife biologists. And if you order during this pre-order period, you will get it for free. All you have to do is enter your order information and, of course, your email address. And we will keep you up to date of um, when the class is and how to listen to it. I actually did set a date. It will be October 3rd, 2020, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you like this podcast, I really hope you rate and review it. These reviews really help other people find it. And I have so much fun doing it. If you have any ideas for topics, just let me know. Shoot me a message on social media. I hope you have an amazing day. Be kind to each other. And of course, be kind to animals. Bye.